Chapter 19 of John, inerrant, infallible, true in every, every turn of the page. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves, crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you. Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures always. Father, thank you for your word. We ask now that you bless for the good of our, our souls. Their minds would be renewed. Their hearts would be filled to overflow with love for a Savior who gave himself, who came into a wicked world such as we've just been reading about and a wicked world such as the one in which we live to save us. We ask you to, to help us to rest upon him tonight 
In Jesus' name, amen. Children, you know how your parents are always saying things like, um, God knows all about this. He can take care of this. He can deal with this. It doesn't matter what this is, does it? It can be school. I used to think when mom would say things like that, does God really care about my school grades? And the answer is yes. Because we're to do all things as unto the Lord. He cares about us in our totality. Some of you children may have wondered that, but the answer is yes, of course God cares. It may have been relationship issues, right? Maybe your best friend or your worst enemy. Fill in the blanks, whatever it was. You're crying your eyes out and your mom, your dad say, sweetheart, you know, God knows all that's going on. He can take care of this. You just need to trust him. And your parents seem very certain of that, don't they? Have you ever noticed that? Well, how can they be so certain that God's going to take care of this? Well, because they've read their Bibles. Because in many cases here tonight, they've been sitting under the preaching of the word, faithfully preached for the past decades. They've been sitting in Sunday school classes. They've been, they've been studying their catechism and the confession. They've been reading books that teach them, like J.I. Packer's classic, Knowing God. By the way, if you haven't read that, you can't go to heaven, so get it done. That needs to be on your short list. Now, evangelism and the sovereignty of God, that's another classic by Packer, not at the same level classic as knowing God. You don't have to have it read to go to heaven, but knowing God, you do. It's right there with Pilgrim's Progress. But they know from what they've been taught, but they also know from their own experience. Now, we as, we as Calvinist, Reformed folks, we put a good deal of premium on the objective truth of God, and we should because that's where we have to begin with the renewing of our minds, right? Romans 12. But there's also all those passages. John's really big on that you may know, and that know of John has to do with experiencing God. The experiential knowledge of God. A theologian of the 19th century, Robert J. Breckenridge, that was Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield's uncle. He was the brother to John Breckenridge, the politician. He wrote a two-volume systematic theology. First volume was the knowledge of God objectively considered. And volume two was the knowledge of God subjectively considered. Children, your mom and dad, your pastors, your elders, your deacons, we can assure you that God's big enough to take care of 
all your problems, all your questions. Not just because the Bible says so, but because we know from our experience. Well, over and over, John has been trying to explain to us that God is in control. I've tried to show you that. You know, Jesus came in the fullness of time. All through the gospel accounts, there are those times when Jesus is under assault. They're going to take him and kill him. And Jesus somehow, and often the gospel writers painted in this mysterious, this mysterious color, don't they? I don't know what you'd call it as an artist, but it's, it's, it's pastels or something that it just seems like he just kind of, you know, slips through. Something mystical happened because it wasn't his time. Back in chapter 7 of John, we considered this. The disciples, Jesus, Passover, let's go. Jesus says, I'm not going. They said, well, it's Passover, you got to go. Hey, Jesus, you know what? You're just not out there enough. If you were out there doing more of these things, there'd be more people believing. You need to show off a little bit. Go back and read it. That's exactly what they did. That's what I told you they did several months ago now. So Jesus said, nope, it's not, not my time to go up. So they go on. And then in the middle of the feast, he comes. And he begins his public teaching ministry in full force there. Why? Because he wasn't going on man's timetable. He was going to go on his timetable. He's in control. And that's what we've been seeing even in this road to Calvary, this, this section here in chapters 18 and 19 so far, is that God's controlling this whole thing. What the Jews say, what they get, what they don't get. The way Pilate says and doesn't say. What Jesus says and doesn't say. And that's really one of the main points, particularly of this portion, is that, that, that God is superintending the affairs of sinful men. He really is sovereign. He really is guiding, upholding, directing all things from the greatest to the least. There's not one, as many theologians have said, R.C. Sproul gets most recent credit for it, I think. There's not one renegade atom in the universe. If there were, we'd be without hope and there'd be no God. Because everything would be out of, out, of, out of focus, out of kilter, out of control then. All right. With that, let's look at these three points that help us more clearly see this. The first is the irony of words and symbols in verses 1 through 7. Let me mention something that you may have noticed as you've read the synoptic parallel texts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In those parallel texts to John... <clears throat> We have in, in Luke's account that Pilate finds out that Jesus is from Galilee, and so he sends him to Herod because that's Herod's region. That's his domain, but he's there in Jerusalem at the time. 
And so he sends him over to Herod's place. Herod doesn't get anything out of Jesus. He won't talk to him. And so Herod uh, sends him back to Pilate. And it says there in Luke that from that time forward, Herod and Pilate, who had previously been at odds with one another, became good friends over this. Why? Well, because they both loved poking and prodding and needling the Jews. And now they're both on the same side for a change. We find out it's in that context that the thorny crown and the, 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 the robe is put on Jesus. Now here, Pilate took Jesus, scourged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Now there's liberals, of course, have a heyday with this because they say, oh, see, they can't even get this right. You know, they didn't even compare notes. It was Herod that did it, not Pilate. But remember John's purpose. John's purpose is, is not to give us chronological history, per se. He's not giving us inaccurate history. It doesn't say here that Pilate put the thorns on his head or the, or the, the gown on him, does it? No, it just makes the statement that the soldiers had done this. And that's what we find back in Luke's account. They did it, but in the context of Herod. But now he's back from Herod, and he's here. I mean, John doesn't even bother to tell us about Herod. That was unimportant to John. Because he's doing what? Not history, like Luke was, or to a lesser degree, like Matthew was. He's doing theology. So he's just simply telling us something that's theologically important here. And that is that they put this crown and gown, as I like to say. That rhymes better than crown and royal robe. But that's what they did. And let me just say this. You read these thorns. These thorns that they made this crown out of. I'm just reading up on that over the last couple of weeks. And the, the historians of this period tell us that these thorns, when you, when you braided them like they would to make a crown, the shape of a crown, when, they would, when people would then come out into the sunshine, they would glisten like gold. They were just shining, brilliant. They put them on to be painful, right? But the irony of it is that they shone like gold. Royalty. They didn't intend for Jesus to look royal. They intended for him to look bloody and mutilated and in pain. But when people saw Jesus come out with this crown... Yeah, they would have seen the blood streaming down. But they would have seen this shining symbol on his head that would have reminded them of a crown, of royalty. As you start reading these and you're like, wow. That's not what they meant. When they say, hail king of the Jews, that's not what they meant. They weren't meaning to praise him. They were meaning to mock him. Remember what Jesus said? On that road. 
coming in, the hosannas, if they don't praise me, the stones will rise up and praise me. And here, these heart of stone people are praising him and they don't even realize what they're doing. Remarkable. Their mockery is in reality from the crown to the gown to the praises. The reality is closer to truth than they even realize. That he is exactly who he said he was. He is exactly who the Jews are accusing him of claiming to be. Second thing in this is notice that he comes out. They've, they've, they've mutilated him. He's been beaten with a scourge. You no doubt have heard of that. The horrific nature of the scourge. The cat of nine tails, as that was called. It was, it was braided together of bone and rock and metal pieces. And people often didn't even survive the scourging. So he's got this bloody mess on his face. His whole body is beaten to a pulp. And Pilate presents him. And behold the man. And here commentators get really fanciful. You know, here he's, you know, behold the man. Maybe he's trying to get sympathy because We've already seen him try to get out of this. Now, I haven't mentioned something. We'll come to this in a moment. But he has good reason to have tried to escape this ill treatment of Jesus. His wife. If you go and read Matthew's account, his wife comes and says, um, I had a dream about this man. You don't need to get involved in this. You need to leave this Jesus alone. So, his wife wants him to leave Jesus alone. He's going to leave Jesus alone if he can figure out a way to do it. But the Jews keep pushing. Jews keep pushing. But here, behold the man. Perhaps some say he's trying to, trying to evoke some sympathy in the Jews. Look at this man. This is the man you're scared of? This man that's being mutilated? This man that is being mocked? He doesn't even reply most of the time when I ask him questions. You're concerned with him? I don't know. I don't, I, you know, I've always had trouble in history with people who do psychological and sociological history. By that, I don't mean social history or history of psychology. I mean where we try to get into the brain of somebody and, 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 and say, oh, well, I know why they did that. Well, maybe you do or maybe you don't. If the facts don't tell you that, then you don't have any history. You just have your, your psychologizing. So leave us out of that. That's one of my reasons for not having much interest in 
psychological theology either, which is what a lot of commentators get into sometimes, even conservative men. I wonder what he means by behold the man. Later he's going to say, behold your king. I don't know what Pilate meant by behold the man. I know what God meant. Jesus' own favorite name for himself was the son of man. It was his kingly name. And here he stands as a king. Mocked as a king, yes. But he's already told Pilate, I am the king. That's why I was born. Pilate says, behold the man, not knowing the significance of what he's saying. And here stood Jesus, a sacrifice. The blood, all the people see is the prefigurement of the paschal lamb. I mean, they're thinking blood already. The lambs and the goats and the bulls are everywhere in Jerusalem. You can hear them bleeding. You can hear them hear them hear hear the cattle you can hear it's all over the city you're about to have this bloody sacrifice and here stood the real bloody sacrifice the man Jesus Christ the mediator Paul says the man who was the one mediator between God and man Jesus Christ That's the theology John wants us to pick up on here. He doesn't want us to get psychological about Pilate as much as theological about Jesus. And so the chief priest and the officers saw him and they cry out, crucify, crucify. Pilate said, take him yourselves. I find no guilt in him. Isn't that wonderful? The spotless lamb of God. The perfect lamb of God. The sinless Lamb of God. And here even a wicked man gives testimony to that fact in Jesus Christ. And he didn't even know what he was doing. The irony of it. And They say crucify. And you put what Pilate's doing and what they're wanting to do together. And you get the salvation of sinners. And that's not what they wanted. That's not what they thought they were going for. But that's what God was going for, was the salvation of sinners. And would come through this bloody sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and there he was standing before them. The man, Christ Jesus, the mediator between God and sinners. I love John, don't you? Then the Jews say, hey, we have a law. And by that law, he ought to die. What was the law? It was the law of blasphemy. He's claimed to be the son of God. And we've already seen in John that son of God is an equation mark for God. They've already said, this guy's got to die. He said he's son of God. That means he made himself out to be God. He has to go. He has to die according to our law. Do you notice what it says in verse 8? Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. The very God who had given the law is now being judged by the law, according to the Jews. We have to be careful not to do that, don't we? 
We can do that sometimes. Take God's word and say, God, you promised to do this. You're not doing this. And all of a sudden, we've turned the law on God. He's the giver of the law. And for us to even, even hint that he doesn't perfectly keep the law, what a sin. But let's move on to the next point, the effect of sin and superstition, the blinding effect. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, what statement? He made himself out to be the son of God. He was even, in the New American Standard, he was even more afraid. I think the ESV says he was, he was yet uh, 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 more afraid. More afraid? When did he become afraid? Well, I think this goes back to his wife. She was scared to death by this nightmare that she'd had about Jesus. And we don't know what that was, but it was enough to get her attention and tell her he should have nothing to do with this man. But now, he's more afraid. First, he's got the dream to deal with of his wife. And now he's got this statement of the Jews that he claims to be the son of God. Why did that make him more afraid? Because Pilate was superstitious. We've seen this. In the past several weeks in the Exodus series with Pastor Morris, Pharaoh was a God man, right? He was a God in human form. And then we had all those, you know, the, the, the frogs and the gnats and, 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 and they had gods. And the people believed this. They were so superstitious. Caesar in the Roman context was the Pharaoh. He was the God in man form. And now Pilate says, what if he is? What if he is a God in man form? And I'm dealing with him? I I, I hold his life in my hand? That'd make you more afraid, wouldn't it? Now what do I do? I mean, he could turn on me. I mean, I could be the one to end up crucified. So he's even more afraid. And so he runs back into the praetorium. Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus says nothing. Like most of us, Pilate couldn't stand the silence, so he he asked another question. Or he makes a statement, rather, in this case. Don't you know that I have authority to release you? Now, the order in which he says this suggests that that that's probably the direction he was leaning. That he was perhaps on the bubble, on the fence about this, but he was leaning toward releasing Jesus. And I have authority to crucify you. Don't you know this? Well, Jesus won't stay quiet now. You don't have any authority, Pilate. 
all the authority you have is delegated. Pilate's first thought would have been if Jesus had just said that, well, yeah, Caesar. But Jesus doesn't go there, does he? Jesus said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. There Jesus is just, is just calling our attention back to, and John is, is highlighting it back to chapter 8 of Proverbs. Um, verse 15, by me, God speaking, by me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who judge rightly. God's the one who puts the civil magistrate in their place. Romans 13, Paul picks up on this. Peter picks up on it in his epistles. It's the truth of the Bible. Every civil magistrate, our mayor in Oak Ridge, our city council, they all rule through delegated authority and it begins with God. They wouldn't have those seats those positions, if it weren't for God putting them there. That's the reason the Bible tells us to pray for them and to respect them instead of to speak about them and make jokes about them. That's too convicting, I know. So we'll move back to the text. Jesus says, you'd have no authority except from me. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Who's he referring to? Who has the greater sin? Is it Pilate? No. That's obvious from the context. As he says, for this reason, he who delivered me to you. So it's not Pilate. Some have said, was well, Judas. Judas has not been on the scene for a, for a while now. The last we saw of Judas was this morning in Luke 23 when he leaves the Lord's Supper and he goes and he sells his soul and these same chief priests and Pharisees here paid him money to betray the Lord and we saw Judas then do that very thing in the garden last night and now he's gone out throwing the money at them and most likely already taken his own life. It's most likely a reference to Caiaphas. Caiaphas knew better. He was the, he was the chief priest. He's the one who's handing him over. He's the one at the very center. He's the voice of these people. It's interesting, isn't it? Pilate's certainly accountable to God for what he's doing and about to do. But Jesus says that Caiaphas is even a greater sinner. See, Pilate, Pilate was a pagan. He didn't know the scriptures, but Caiaphas Caiaphas knew the scriptures. He should have known better. That's the reason it's, it's, it's a frightful thing. Children, listen to me. Teenagers, adults, all of us. When we know and we don't believe. 
when we know and we don't obey. There's a greater sin attached to that and therefore a greater punishment attached to that for us if we don't believe and we don't do. We love to stand and wag our finger at our, our pagan friends out there, don't we? And yes, there is, there is punishment. If they don't repent, they will perish. But for those of us who know better and don't do and don't believe, there's even a greater punishment. And Jesus gives us this right here. Well, then finally, as a result, Pilate made every effort to release him, or made effort to release him. But the Jews cried out the more, if you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. They play the Caesar card now. They see Pilate leaning back, and they play the Caesar card. If you release this man, you're no friend of your boss. You're no friend of your God. You're denying your God. You're denying your employer. If you release this man, everyone who opposes him, makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Now Pilate is jolted to reality. They're right, of course. And so Pilate heard these words. He brought Jesus out, sat down on the pavement seat. And passed his judgment. It was the day of preparation. It was about the sixth hour, noon. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. He has to do it one more time. He has to just stick the needle in one more time. He has to poke them one more time. This is your king. And they cried, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate says one more time, Shall I crucify your king? I mean, we can't even imagine the temperature there on the pavement. I'm not talking about the, how hot it was. I'm talking about, I mean, this was a heated moment going on here between the Jews and Pilate, and he's just poking on them. And he pushes and he pushes and he pushes, and they confess their faith. Or better... They renounce their faith. The chief priests. Now we've got this Annas, Caiaphas, that whole family of chief priests. They all, apparently, John's wanting us to know they're speaking with one voice. There's no one demurring here. No one is, no one's outside the, the, the agreement on this. We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. And Pilate then handed him over to them to be crucified. Them, it's it's ambiguous. The Jews can't do this. But Pilate's handing them over to the soldiers to do it. But John leaves it open. They're all crucifying him. The Jews, the Roman soldiers, all of them. That's the reason Peter could say in, in, in Acts, 
you put this man to death. And they would have stood there with Peter and said, no, 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 no. The Roman soldiers did that. But Peter says, no, you did it. Pilate handed them over to you. Pilate cast judgment on them. He judged Jesus. He judged the Jews right there. And Pilate, in other words, is saying to them, okay, he's yours and you're mine. Because if Caesar is your king, guess who's your boss? Guess who, who's in control now? You used to have it your way. You got to live in relative peace here. I got you now. You just, you just confessed your faithfulness, your fidelity to me. Luke says, he turned them over to their will. This was their will. This was the will of the Jews, of the Jewish leaders. The will of the Jewish leaders. And they could not choose against their nature. Their nature was to kill rather than worship the king. Pilate hands them over to their will. That's what they wanted. We want him dead. We want Caesar as our God. That's what we'll have. Pilate said, you got it, and now you're mine. That's what Satan does to us if we're not very careful. Back in the 70s, there was a little old southern band that wasn't as popular as, as Almond Brothers and, and Marshall Tucker and Leonard Skinner, they were called Molly Hatchet. And they had a hit song on the radio called Flirting with Disaster. That's what they were doing here, y'all. When you flirt with disaster, disaster most likely will be the outcome. If you're flirting with sin tonight, most likely sin will win. So when sin comes calling, remember what Paul said. God is faithful. He has prepared a way of escape for us. Look for that crack in the door. Look for that open window and run to Christ. That's where they should have been running was to Christ. They should have been defending Christ. They should have been pulling that thorny crown off of his head. They should have been taking that mockery of a robe off of him. And they should have bowed before him. But they had flirted with disaster so long that that was inevitable. The point of no return. So let me ask you a question. To whom do you truly belong tonight? Right up until this moment, these Jewish leaders would have said they belonged to God. Even though Jesus had already tried to warn them, no, if, you, if, if, if God were your God, if Abraham were your father, you would know who I am. The warning had gone out, but they hadn't heeded the warning. So the question is, will you? If you're flirting with sin, if you're flirting with disaster, if you have other gods in your life, 
It can be careers. It can be money. It can be status. It can be you fill in the blank. Don't let that become your Caesar. Don't let that become your Caesar because Jesus says you cannot serve God and fill in the blank. You will either serve one or you'll serve the other. You cannot serve them both. Thank you, Father, for your word. We ask you to bless now in Jesus' name. Amen.